Welcome to the Aritate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Errol Harvey, CEO and Managing Director of Minifab Australia. It's wonderful to have you along again today on the Aritate Podcast. I'm really looking forward to this fascinating conversation with Errol Harvey. But before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about Arate and the motivations for this podcast. Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. And the idea of this podcast is to interview people who have achieved great outcomes in terms of their careers, so that the people who are listening in who have similar aspirations have the ability to learn from those who have walked the path before them. And certainly today's conversation is no exception. Arate Executive is my own business. We are an executive recruitment company and we recruit CEOs, non-executive directors and senior executives for our clients throughout Australia. If you want to learn more about our services, feel free to visit our website. There'll be a link in the show notes. I'd also like to encourage you to join our LinkedIn community, the CEO Incubator which at the time of this recording is roughly 1,500 members. It is free to join. It's a great way to network with your peers across industry. It's also the portal that we use for advertising all of our senior executive and director vacancies. So by joining that group, you will get priority awareness of those roles before they go to the open market. So sit back and enjoy the podcast and let me now introduce Errol to you. Errol Harvey is the CEO and Managing Director of Minifab Australia. He's also a Director of the Small Technology Cluster, as well as sitting on a number of technology-related boards. Errol's professional qualifications include a Bachelor of Science with Honours in Physics and a PhD in Laser and Plasma Physics. He has won a number of awards during his career including most recently in 2012, being awarded Enabling Technology Entrepreneur of the Year by the Victoria Manufacturing Hall of Fame. Errol's been married for 25 years and has two children, one finishing university and one finishing high school. I'm excited to bring this conversation to you. Sit back and please enjoy Errol Harvey. Errol, thanks very much uh, for coming in today and uh, joining us on this podcast. Um, uh, probably to get things started, for those who aren't familiar with uh, your business, Minifab, maybe you want to talk a little bit about what Minifab is and what you do and uh, and your role in the business. Mm, yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, so Minifab's a company which I started along with Michael Wilkinson about 13 years ago. And we're a specialist developer and manufacturer of type of technology called lab on a chip technology mm -hmm. so these are medical diagnostics devices and they're aimed for people outside of the healthcare profession um, sometimes people call this point of care mm -hmm. diagnostics so our speciality is making the consumable element of that mm -hmm. which more and more is where all the smarts are Mm. When you say outside of the healthcare industry, what do you mean by that? Well, um, if you're a trained uh, pathologist, mm -hmm. then you're usually in a hospital or in a big path lab, mm -hmm. and there'll be big machines that are high-throughput machines. Um, the technologies that we develop for our clients are intended for non-trained people, and, and there's a special... Um, grading for it it's called clear wave it okay. and it means that anybody without training mm -hmm. should be able to use the device and get a correct answer so a little bit like a pregnancy test strip or mm -hmm. a, um, a diabetes strip mm. you know but instead of simple things like that we're looking for cancer infectious diseases genetic markers mm -hmm. and still keep the simplicity level at the right Hmm. So what would be an example of uh, where it would be used uh, in uh, uh, was, uh, somebody goes to visit their GP or uh, what, would, what would typically happen? Well, one of the, one of the ones we're developing for a, a customer in the US is uh, finding good application in oral care. Okay. So 
this would be a test which your dentist would do. Mm. And um, because you visit your dentist regularly, <clears throat> and if the test is done regularly, then you can see a trend. And it's the trend analysis which is the most important thing. So it's, it's specifically aimed at oral cancer. Mm -hmm. If you present to the dentist when you've already got cancer, it's awfully expensive sure. and invasive to fix. But if the uh, dentist can say, look, you know, these trend marks are going in the wrong direction, we mm -hmm. really need to have a bit of a look at maybe some lifestyle changes and some habit changes or something mm -hmm. like that, then the intervention is uh, much more cost effective. Okay. So that would be a test, yeah, done at the dentist. And and the results, they receive the results almost immediately. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I like that term lab on a chip. Is that uh, your term or is no, that No, it's the jargon of right. our field. Okay, yeah, it's, sure. Um, taking an entire laboratory and putting it onto a, a chip, a piece of plastic. Sure. Something so, like a credit card. Yeah, so I think for those people who want to visualise what this is uh, actually looks like, they can go to your website and there's some examples on mm. the site, isn't there? So we'll have uh, links to that in the show notes. So, um, Errol, uh, this podcast is really about how people have achieved uh, or are even um, moving through their career to achieve their full potential. And uh, I think you've got a really fascinating background. I'm particularly interested in somebody who goes from Lions Youth of the Year runner-up <laughs> in 1990 to in uh, 2009 being one of the top 14 or most notable professors, obviously, in the world. That's uh, an interesting uh, career trajectory, I think I pronounced that correctly. So uh, why don't we start off by just sort of going back to where it all began and, you know, your early formative years, uh, your family and where you were born and brothers and sisters, mum and dad, etc. Okay, well, <clears throat> I was born in Africa. Okay. Uh, in, the, in a country which at the time I was born was called Southern Rhodesia. Mm -hmm. It's changed its name a few times now and it's Zimbabwe. So I uh, lived there until I was uh, about 17. Uh, so I was halfway through high school there. And then uh, the family relocated back to Australia. They were from Australia originally? Well, uh, there's a longer story there. My father was. Mm -hmm. um, he was born here in Victoria. Um, his father died as a result of the 39 bushfires. They, okay. they lived up in Healesville. Okay. And at that time, his uh, mother decided to take him and herself off to Africa. Right. Um, they went on a convoy from Melbourne. The three ships left to go to Cape Town all right. at the same time. The war was on. Yeah. Um, the first two ships didn't make it. Wow. Uh, there were German submarines in the area. Mm -hmm. His ship arrived in Cape Town three weeks late, and they they were sure that the whole convoy had disappeared. And so as the people got off his boat, they were all handed their death certificates. <laughs> and the, sort of the South Africans said, look, obviously we don't need these anymore. Right. So I guess the punchline is that my father's been dead since he was three. Right. Um, but then he lived in Africa, um, got married there, met my mother, I was born there, yeah. Um, but when we tried to uh, come back to Australia, uh, those were the Fraser era, okay. and um, it was very difficult to get mm -hmm. back to Australia. So mm -hmm. we ended up in a refugee camp in uh, in Melbourne, right? Um, because that was the time of the boat people as well, the sure, Cambodians. And, and why the uh, desire to um, get back to Australia originally was it because of safety concerns uh, in Africa? Yeah, um, partly that, but also um, my father had invented a, a contraption for the mining industry and um, it's hard enough forming a business in Australia today, but mm. you imagine trying to do that in a third world country sure. in the middle of a war, it's, mm -hmm. it's not easy and mm -hmm. so I think uh, it was the intention to get back to Australia and uh, re-establish here. Right, okay. Yeah. And uh, did that go on to be a successful invention? Um, for somebody, but right. not for him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, look, the, the war in Africa was, uh, it kind of put the kibosh on sure. all of that sort of stuff. Okay. So we pretty well started again. Right. And so brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got one brother. He's here as well. Um, he's in the IT area. Okay. Um, no sisters. Right. Oh, that's, that's the sum of us, the uh -huh. four of us. Okay. Yeah. So uh, back to uh, Melbourne, well, back to Australia when you were 17. Mm. And how long were you in the uh, camp for? Um, we were there for about six months. Uh, it was a migrant hostel mm -hmm. in uh, in Melbourne, and you meet a lot of people who've come from there. It's sure. a great community of uh, people that have spent some time in those migrant hostels. Yeah. But we couldn't get out quickly enough. Sure. So, uh, and obviously, I mean, uh, 
you know, you're at an age where you're probably really keen to get out and and uh, be independent and so on. It must have been quite a yeah. frustrating to be stuck in a facility like that. Oh, look, I, I was in pure culture shock. Right. Um, we'd changed country. It was going from a third world to a first world country and mm. everything was so different here. Mm. Um, I understood the language, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't understand what the sentences meant. It took right. me a while to work out okay. what Aussies were saying. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it took all of us a little bit of time to, to reacclimatize. And I guess that's true for refugees and migrants who are coming in today. It mm. must be a huge culture shock, especially if you don't share the language. Oh, for sure. And, and you see the communities uh, really stick together. Uh, certainly mm. where I'm from in Brisbane, uh, there are little pockets uh, of suburbs where particular uh, uh, people you know, all seem to live because obviously they like the... Uh, the familiarity of their uh, their original communities, mm. I suppose. There's also um, a great expectation amongst uh, people in that sort of area that they have to fend for themselves. So, sure. Um, one of the things I'm passionate about is entrepreneurship, and mm. you see that in spades with people that are recently come from a country that's fallen apart, mm -hmm. uh, realizing that um, we've got a terrific system here in Australia to actually make things happen. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, that's, that's definitely what helped get us back on our feet. Okay, sure. So uh, what happened from there? Well, I finished high school and um, it was at the days when you could get into university on a, on a scholarship. Right. No hex fees or anything. Right. So yeah. I went to Monash and did physics, which really was my... Uh, my keen interest mm -hmm. uh, and I got through to ended up doing a PhD in mm -hmm. physics in mm -hmm. laser physics uh, at the university and then um, decided from there to go and do a postdoc in um, uh, England right because I uh, looked at your uh, CV and I could see there was this uh, space sort of between um, 83, 84 and 89. So that was study time in mm. Australia or in the UK? Yeah, no, that's in that's undergraduate and postgraduate right. here at uh, Monash. Until in... you completed your PhD. That's right. Right, okay. Yeah. And then off to the UK. Yeah, well, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of funding in our system and I think researchers will say that that's still the case. Sure. And always thought that everything was be easier overseas where science is appreciated. Right. So I went over to the UK, uh, worked in a big government research laboratory there and found that they struggled for funding and wished that science was appreciated. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things where you realise the rest of the world is pretty similar to you. Yeah, well, We're all fact, struggling the same way. My dad uh, is, uh, was, he's passed away now, but he did his PhD in the UK and then moved to Canada and then the US and, uh, and then to Australia, almost the sort of reverse of you. And I think that's part of the, uh, the way to um, grow your career uh, to professorship and so on is you have to move between universities and gradually uh, you, um, get your stripes, don't you? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and um, the thing about academia is that you have an instant passport to your peers anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm now in business and um, my business colleagues don't realise the strength of academic networks. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you or I have spent some time in the research area means that I can pretty well pick up the phone or email anybody around the world and Im immediately get connected with similar entrepreneurial people in mm. whatever region they are. And um, I think that's something that uh, academics have and don't recognise is so valuable. Mm. Whereas in a business sense, you've got to really work to build those. Do you think that's because it's a different kind of competition? Uh, I mean, certainly um, research-based academics are wanting to, um, to publish, but it's a different type of environment to being in a corporate space where essentially you know, you're going to war every day uh, against your competitors and so on. Uh, the academic environment is equally competitive. Mm. There's a limited pool of grants mm -hmm. and everybody's fighting for their slice of it. So mm. it can be very cutthroat. The, the difference, though, is that most uh, high-performing researchers are uh, first and foremost loyal to their discipline mm -hmm. and secondly to their institution, sure. which I think frustrates heads of mm. universities a lot but mm -hmm. it means that I'm in physics and if you talk to another physicist from Harvard or 
Cambridge, you're immediately on the same right. uh, platform. And just stepping back uh, just a moment, I mean, what was it about laser and plasma physics in particular that excited you at the time? <laughs> it's a, I've always enjoyed technology and, and application of science. Mm -hmm. um, lasers and plasmas, at those days, we're talking 80s, um, lasers were still considered a solution looking for a problem. Okay. Which um, is hard to believe these days when sure. we've all got laser pointers and yep. CD players and everything. Um, but also, I just love the interaction light has with um, materials. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's a great medium. And you, you look at how people light up cities these mm. days. You can see how people play with light. Sure. And plasma physics is the same. Right. Okay. So uh, off to the UK mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, talk to us about what happened when you got there. Right. So I uh, went to work for a large government research lab and we built uh, very big lasers for fusion work. Mm -hmm. um, I was paid awfully and uh, lived in a very expensive part of England, just near Oxford. Right. Um, met my uh, uh, wife at that time. Um, she was at university too, wasn't well, she? Well, she was at the research lab as well, right. working in a different field in, uh -huh. in uh, genetics. Um, and uh, a couple of the scientists from the lab decided to set up their own company and uh, asked if I would join them. So, mm -hmm. uh, well... When I looked at, at the opportunity, I thought, do I jump into the unknown, mm. which is a brand new startup, these two guys, or do I stay with a nice uh, familiar track through academic type research mm. and so on? And I guess um, I looked at it and thought, well, this is one of those decisions in life where if you choose the safe option, you may always regret mm. never having had a go. Mm. And so I had to go and never look back after mm. that. I suppose it wasn't just, uh, do I leave academia, uh, academia to go to <coughs> a brand new startup, but it was to go into a, a commercial environment, an entrepreneurial environment, uh, regardless of whether it was a smaller or a more established business, I imagine. Yeah, and they were only two of them. And I guess part of the metric was, do they have as much to lose as I would? Right. And I decided we were all taking as big a risk as each other. Um, there was only the three of us mm. and uh, a lot of great ideas and aspirations, but it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun, and mm. it was. And what were the sort of things that uh, you were working with, uh, working on there? Well, we again, we were specialised in, in using lasers, but for machining applications. Mm -hmm. So it's still got that light theme to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did all sorts of fun stuff. We um, machined holes in fiber optics to make catheters. Okay. Uh, one of the fun ones was we built the heat shield for the Hubble Space Telescope rescue mission right. um, around the solar panel arrays. Um, we worked on flat panel TVs, inkjet okay. printers. I mean, it was just, as a technologist, it was... Um, smorgasbord of mm. fabulous stuff that we were working on and and we were a service provider so our business was providing machining techniques to the clever people that were right. developing all of these smart stuff so again uh, that really built the network mm. um, lots of Japanese top labs uh, US and Europe they were all our customers and how uh, did they hear about you or why were they coming to you for that kind of work yeah that's a that's a good question and i think that's to do with that academic uh networking type ability so it's mm -hmm. network marketing mm, okay um and the, this is um late 80s early 90s so mm -hmm. you've got to realize this is before the web mm -hmm. and these days it's much easier to use sure. all the sort of social media type systems to get your message out there mm. but but in those days it was much more direct you had to know people and mm -hmm. then jump on planes and go and talk to them. Mm. And so you were with them for about three years, is mm -hmm. that right? Uh, so, no, about eight. Yeah. Oh, so uh, they became... Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Rutherford, uh, this is Exitech that you're Exitec, talking about. That's yes, Exitech, yes. Right, okay. And so, uh, and then I see from there... Um, Remaining still in the UK or back to Australia? No, then uh, there was a push here in Australia to get a synchrotron established right. and uh, I was invited to give some talks here and as a consequence of that, the Vice-Chancellor of Swinburne University mm -hmm. said to me, 
you want to come back to Australia? And, and he literally waved his arms in the air and he said, and do whatever it is you do. Right. And um, again, it was one of those, do I change or do I regret not taking the risky decision of mm. um, coming back to Australia and needing to re-establish an entire research group and mm. build a micro-engineering facility and capability and so on. And but building that within the Swinburne within environment. Within Swinburne, yes, right. that's right. Okay, so you've you've moved from an academic type environment to a highly entrepreneurial commercial environment, and then kind of stepping back, or it sounds as though that might have been something a little bit in the middle. Well, it, it was academia, mm -hmm. but uh, the vice chancellor at the time said that you can be, well, I could be as academic or as uh, commercial as I wanted mm -hmm. and I looked at him and I thought gee I hope you know what you've just said right because we built a research team that um, was always focused on the industrial problems mm -hmm. of microengineering and mm -hmm. we had lasers as a, as a starting point mm -hmm. but very much the um, the ability to solve problems that we knew other people in industry were having and Swinburne always has had a very strong connection with industry and mm. industry players. So mm. it was just the right environment to build that capability. Mm. And what, I mean, you, during that time that you were there, which was about 11 years, mm. uh, what were some of the, the key achievements or key outcomes in that period? Well, we, we um, so I built the, the research team. It got up to about 35 people. And um, we also got uh, funding through a cooperative research centre, the CRCs. Mm -hmm. So we built a CRC for microtechnology. And again, uh, our clients were people like Bosch and Motorola. And, and so that was great for, for getting contacts here. But... Um, one of the really fun ones was the Australian Institute of Sport. Okay. And uh, they came to us with all sorts of problems on how to monitor athletes and athletic performance. Mm -hmm. And um, it was terrific working with elite uh, athletes and the people at the top of their profession. Uh, we built some great projects. We monitored rowers. Mm -hmm. We uh, measured uh, blood lactate levels. Um, all sorts of monitoring systems and, and in fact, uh, built a spin-out company called Catapult Technologies, which mm -hmm. is now a listed Australian company. Right. Who have built athlete tracking systems that are used all the way through AFL and okay. uh, Premier League soccer teams. And okay. So it's turned into a real success story. Oh, fantastic. And that was uh, during that time that you uh, got your professorship? That's right, yeah. Right. So I was still beavering away um, as a professor at uh, the university. Mm -hmm. But that's when I met um, Michael Wilkinson, who was keen to try to seed a um, business park mm -hmm. in uh, the east of Melbourne that had a science base to it. And so try to form a, a technology hub that we could use to attract other technology businesses mm. around it. And so working with him and the university, uh, that's how we built the business model for Minifab and then eventually started Minifab. Sure. And then transitioned most of the research team over to the company. Mm -hmm. And so what was his background uh, prior to that? Well, Michael um, is a builder. Right. He is uh, a construction engineer and uh, he tended to concentrate on building clean rooms and laboratories and mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So... Um, he uh, often will introduce himself by saying he's just a builder, but in fact, after 13 years, he's also a pretty good microtechnologist. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and so you started in uh, 2002, mm. and uh, now 13, 14 years later, I'm really interested in some of the milestones along that journey. Well... I suppose the non-milestone is that, like all startup companies, we applied for some government grants to get funded mm -hmm. and um, bombed out. Right. Uh, it, every, nobody, none of the reviewers liked our business model. Mm -hmm. uh, they all said that we had no IP, no patents, no products, there's no market in Australia, all of which is true, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore um, the business would never work, mm -hmm. which was not true. Um, the business model is a service model. We, we are specialists in our area and we recognise that there's a global need for our kind of uh, specialisation. Mm. So, um, yeah, because we didn't get any uh, 
support, we basically bootstrapped the process and we literally started with donated time from the students and the staff mm -hmm. and um, we did little jobs that nobody else was brave enough or silly enough to do, like mm. drilling tiny, tiny holes in pieces of plastic and right. things like that. Um, from there, though, we started to be able to uh, get contracts for the larger projects and convince people, pr principally in the United States, mm. um, that they should uh, trust us to do their product development. Mm. And I guess a, a great milestone for us is when we did that for a company called Tierlab, uh, which was a San Diego-based startup trying to develop a diagnostic for measuring tears mm -hmm. from your eye. And we developed the consumable for them um, in 18 months, got that uh, CE marked and then FDA compliant. And for the last seven years, we've now been the exclusive manufacturer for, of that for them. Mm. And we make millions of those a year. So it's been a, it's been a nice success story for mm, the business sure. model, which has started from very simple things all the way through to, to complicated manufacturing. Mm. I suppose uh, I understand the academic uh, network gets you access to these kind of opportunities, but I imagine that a, a convincing uh, organisations, for example, in America, that you can do that work, but not only do the work, but do it in Australia, that must have added an additional challenge to convincing them to trust you to get it done properly. So I suppose... That's true. The, the story with Tierlab, though, was one of desperation on their side. They had just re raised some capital and they were burning through that. Mm -hmm. And they had um, uh, teamed up with IBM to develop the consumable. And for various technical reasons, that was never going to work. It mm. was completely down the wrong direction. And so they were burning through their cash and not getting a result. And uh, I think he was desperately looking for alternatives and came across us. We got him to come out and visit us and um, he explained the problem. Um, I said, yes, I'm pretty sure we can solve that for you. And uh, you could see him raise his eyebrows skeptically. Mm -hmm. but we then went off to lunch and one of my chief development uh, engineers who was in the meeting excused himself from the lunch and uh, went back into the lab and uh, as we came back again after lunch he slipped me a little piece of plastic and he said it's all right i've done it <laughs> <laughs> so you know we did we do have amazing technology right. and oh, so we were excellent. pretty confident that we'd right. be able to solve the problem uh, it's a great story and uh, you know i think that uh, obviously your partnership has been critical to achieving the success that you have i mean how how did you originally uh, come together as partners and uh, delineate, okay, I'll do this part of the business and you look after that, and, and how has that sort of evolved over the years? Mm. Um, Michael's son refers to our partnership as yin and yang. Right. Um, I'm not sure that there's a rigid boundary mm -hmm. between uh, what bits his and what bits mine. Um, we, um, we do complement each other in terms of uh, maybe... He's a bit more of a risk taker. I tend to be the more conservative engineering type. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, there hasn't been a, a let's sit down and you do this bit and I'll do that bit type discussion. It's just worked really well. Have you always had the role of CEO of the business? Mm. And what's his role? Well, he's uh, chairman. Right. Um, but again, th those come from the early days when we sat down and we said, well, we better give ourselves some titles. Yeah. Otherwise, people won't know sure. how to talk to us. Yeah. So it's not a traditional relationship where, uh, as the chair, uh, they're responsible for, with the board setting strategy and the CEO is responsible for implementing strategy then? Yeah, look, um, obviously we have those those structures, but, mm. but we are a small private company and sure. we've grown as a, as a startup. And mm. so um, it is just as important to make sure that the magic works amongst mm -hmm. the key um, executive team mm. and also the senior staff mm. um, as we have been growing the country the company so we're now about 120 people mm -hmm. um, we've had to also nurture the management skills of our, our of our staff and make sure that they work effectively as mm. part of the executive group mm. 
I mean, you've had a fascinated with entrepreneurship uh, for, it sounds like, from your, you know, um, young adult life. Um, and uh, bringing that entrepreneurship to life in a successful business uh, must be incredibly uh, satisfying. What, what do you think are some of the key attributes that, you know, are not necessarily unique to you, but have enabled you to be able to have that interesting um, career moving uh, in and out of the university space, having a strong entrepreneurial flair, and also being able to build a business which um, has achieved some good global success now? Mm. You're right. It, I have been a bit on both sides of the fence, or as some people told me, it's the black hole between the two. Right. <laughs> um, I think one of the one of the things uh, that I like to encourage in amongst entrepreneurs is that, especially science-based entrepreneurs, is that they shouldn't wait for somebody to give them their ideal job. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they have um, a vision and they they Usually they've been trained, and if you're in some technically difficult area, um, you've probably got some grey matter there as well. Sure. Um, it, it, it is just a case of getting behind those sorts of people and, and get them to make their ideal job. Um, one of the things that, you know, speaking as a, an ex-academic, one of the things that frustrates me is when I hear people say, I don't want to do that yet because I haven't done the right course. Right. And, and there's, there's this whole machinery of um, uh, universities and so on that is trying to tell everybody that the only thing separating them from their ideal job is this course you haven't done mm, yet. Mm. Um, that may be true that they're useful courses, but they shouldn't be an excuse for not doing anything. Mm. And um, I think we should just you know, encourage more people to get out there and have a go at it and learn from actually doing. Sure. Well, I can't recall whether it was on a podcast or a different conversation, but certainly, uh, you know, I've done an MBA and I go back and speak to the MBA schools regularly about, you know, how to get a job because they spend a huge amount of money, you know, to get an MBA. But when it comes to actually getting out there and creating their ideal job, often they really have no idea. And uh, I think you're exactly right. I mean, certainly in Australia, uh, practical experience and uh, and tangible achievements are far more valued than academic qualifications. But I think the universities um, would definitely like to encourage people, oh, look, before you move into a middle management <laughs> role, it's really important that you buy this MBA that's only $70,000 and... Yeah. Well, I, of course universities are going to try and sell you a course. Mm. But the other thing to remember is that universities are a connection to a community. Mm. And, and I think one of the most important things for young entrepreneurs is to surround themselves with supportive peers and, and others in the community, mentors, mm. you know, people at all sorts of different levels. Mm. And sometimes being part of those courses is a really valuable way of making those connections. Oh, without a doubt. I, I note from... Um, uh, you know, the, your CV that uh, you haven't gone on to do any kind of uh, management type uh, formal qualifications. So as you've um, grown in terms of your leadership um, uh, skills and, and the the mandate in terms of the size of teams and the type of business, etc., how have you upskilled yourself in from a, a business slash leadership perspective? Yeah, I suppose, well, first of all, I, I guess I never had the time to get out there and or made the time available to uh, to do those other courses. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn, well, I learned from making mistakes and, and, you know, the classic way, watching what works, what doesn't work. And what I was just talking about before, which was uh, surrounding yourselves by people that you trust and uh, who you can bounce ideas off and, and maybe get some inspiration from. So... Yeah, learning from the field is, is really important. So um, I do spend a lot of time out there talking with others. Um, our client base is also um, very often startups, mm-hmm. and some of them have some very experienced people mm-hmm. who are serial entrepreneurs. So one of the most um, powerful uh, teaching methods or innovation uh Places for any business is your client base and your supplier base. Sure. And that's the same for us. And do you think that uh, your vision for the business has changed much in the time from founding it to where it is now? 
Not not changed, but evolved. When right. when when we started, we didn't have many resources. Uh, we had great aspirations, and we knew we had to start small. Mm-hmm. Um, we always had in mind to then work to bigger projects, and then to establish a manufacturing capability. Um, the manufacturing stuff is now more than half our, our company's activity. And um, that then gives us a platform to start our own internal investments. Mm. Uh, so that opens up a bunch of interesting opportunities where we're looking out for um, other areas where we can create new growth. Mm-hmm. And what uh, is the um, key areas that you're looking at in that regard now? Well, they're, they're pretty varied. Um, they're always in the technology area and mm-hmm. I suppose in the health type area. But I'll give you an example. One of them is... Um, uh, we're a participant in the Bionic Eye project with um, Monash University. It's the Monash Vision Group. Okay. And uh, what we're doing there is developing a electronic implant which um, will be inserted into the brain of a person who's blind. Mm. Uh, it's on the visual cortex, which yes. is the back of your head. Right. And uh, that's different from the way most bionic projects work where they're developing... Mm a prosthesis to go inside your eye right, so that okay. stimulates the retina. Um, we've been working on that for about five years and we're hoping to have our first in-human implant next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think that'll be a really exciting inflection sure. point for the technology uh, where we will um, hopefully be able to bring a kind of vision to, mm. to people that have been blind. but. Who knows, maybe form the next cochlear kind of company. Right, okay. I read uh, that book, uh, The Brain That Changed Itself. No, is it Norman Doidge, is that his name? Or, uh, I've got the book on my bedside oh, table. And I it's a, it's a great read and I saw him speak and uh, they were talking about a technology where people actually had glasses that were translating into impulses on the tongue. Mm. And, yeah, so uh, um, fascinating. That must be... Uh, Really interesting. Well, I I think, you know, the the opportunity for direct, what we call it direct neural interface, because it's electronics directly stimulating Mm -hmm. neurons, uh, in our case, directly to the brain. And we're working with some um, incredible uh, surgeons and technical people in that project. And Mm -hmm. um, it's not the first time that an electrode will have been put in the brain Mm -hmm. um, for vision. Uh, There was some early work done about 20 years ago. But with advances in the technology, more processing power, the fact that we can um, take a complicated camera image and give the user the most important information that they're interested in, which turns out to be things like faces. Mm. They want to know how many people are in a room. Mm. And so there'll be a little vision setting on the box which you can twirl around and you'll see little emoticons because we've not got very many pixels. Right. You'll see little emoticons of the people's faces right. using the same sort of software that your, your camera does, you sure. know, your iPhone camera or whatever. Um, and hopefully also be able to show them whether the person is smiling or frowning or not looking at them or whatever. Mm. And um, people who are blind tell us that uh, it's that social connection which is the things that they really miss. Mm. So, yeah, we're looking forward to changing some lives. Yeah, that. I can imagine that mm. that's successful. Uh, you will have such a rewarding um, feeling to feel that you've had that contribution to society. And so you were saying that is a, a minifab working with Monash, is that right? Right. So um, there's another company, Grey Innovation, in that consortium, and it's with the Alfred Hospital in Monash. Mm-hmm. Now, we've... we've um, had some initial funding and Minifab is putting some funding into the project, but we need to raise some serious capital for that. Um, There's still uh, a long way to go before we've got um, a robust product that, you know, people can buy. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it it tests all the entrepreneurial uh, talents of everybody to not only solve the technology, but work out how to raise the capital and... Mm -hmm deal with the commercialization. And so um, how do you personally uh, take a lead role in that? So I'm on the um, governing board of the project team okay. and yep. uh, along with the other participants and uh, also on the uh, commercialization committee that's uh, raising the capital. So if any of your listeners are keen on getting into this, please give us a call. Sure. Well, it'd be interesting to see uh, how the listener uh, base for uh, this podcast grows, but I'm sure that there are 
many people uh, who will listen who uh, are in businesses that have a, a social agenda and, and that could well and truly be uh, something mm. they're keen to participate in. And I note from um, the notes that you made in preparation for this conversation, you've got a, a strong uh, uh, social um, agenda orientation yourself in terms of the not-for-profit work that you do. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, when, when we started Minifab, um, we, uh, there was another party to the group that uh, was the forming party. So um, there was Swinburne University and Michael Wilkinson and then the business park that we were on, Caribbean mm-hmm. Business Park. And the building that um, became vacant and we moved into uh, they donated to us rent-free for three years, and right. then that became their equity mm-hmm. in the startup in Minifab. Okay. But it was a big building, way mm. too big for us. Mm. So we sublet it, and we, for that short period of time, earned the revenues from subletting. Mm. But what we did was we encouraged other startups to move in with us. Now, I suppose that was twofold. First of all, it was a revenue stream for us, but mm-hmm. secondly... Um, we wanted to extend our technical base and uh, we got a, an engineering company to move in and a software company and then a biotech company. Mm-hmm. After a few years, uh, Minifab was on its feet. Our business is not being a landlord for that sort of stuff. So sure. we formed a not-for-profit, which mm-hmm. is called the Small Technology Cluster, STC. And STC is now our landlord, Minifab's landlord. And we've had about... 40 other companies go mm. through the STC incubator mm-hmm. and um, all in the health and medtech space. Mm-hmm. Um, Buzz Palmer is currently the CEO of STC. Um, he's organized some terrific events like uh, Medtech's Got Talent, which is a, uh, a sort of a shark tank type okay. uh, event for uh, people, entrepreneurs in the medical technology space. Yeah. Um, we have an annual uh, get-together called the Event and Attend, which is just a networking function, right. which normally gets about 300 people okay. roll up to that um, to share some Christmas drinks and stories. So, yeah, it is about building that community, really mm-hmm. important to, to build that entrepreneurial uh, spirit around here. Mm. And uh, what are some of the uh, interesting things that have come out of the incubator so far? Well, one of them is Catapult, which was the sports technology company. Um, They've moved out a while ago and they've uh, listed. Um, They're doing very well. Um, We've got um, companies on the other extreme, small two-man company from a laptop-run computational chemistry. They they solve horrendous quantum physics problems okay. and design molecules. Right. And so they're designing molecules with pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Uh, we've got an RFID company. There are companies doing water quality diagnostics. Um, yeah, look, it, medical implants, there's a huge range of mm. uh, companies going through it's great to see and is part of the intent of that then uh where you see opportunities to potentially take a stake in those businesses as they go through to uh commercial success no not necessarily um sometimes there is interaction between us and companies or Mm -hmm. between different companies but it's not a prerequisite or 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 even an aspiration i think Mm -hmm. um you know, the, the thing about Australia, you, you alluded to this in one of your earlier questions, we're far away from the main markets mm. and we need to surround ourselves by like-minded people and encourage each other. Mm. And I, I think it's, it's as much a part of that, um, that that you can be small and when you book a meeting room, it's in a proper boardroom um, that's shared by us if you're having trouble with somebody else's lawyer, you can go and talk to somebody else in the cluster and maybe they've had some experience or they can just act as a mentor. It literally is just about building a community. Mm, okay. And, and within Minifab, uh, you obviously, in terms of your role, are travelling a lot. Uh, you've had to build in a leadership team to uh, run a business which is... Uh, 
at the forefront of a lot of technology, so that attracts a certain kind of person. At the same time, it has to be very commercial, which has a perhaps a different you know personality driver. Uh, and also, your business is very much around client service because you're taking projects in on behalf of your clients. So, how hard is it to find somebody who can work for you that can straddle those sort of three different orientations mm. and fulfil all of them well? Yeah, it it is difficult. Um, we need to tap into a personality type more than a skill set. The mm -hmm. skills are important, mm -hmm. but you're absolutely right uh, in your summary there about the, the service model, the commercial driver, and somebody who still gets excited about the technology mm. so that they're staying at the front end. Um, it is an international business. Um, of our 120-odd people, there are more than 30 languages, mm -hmm. different languages spoken as a first language in the company. So um, I think our, uh, particularly in the technical team, the um, uh, base of employees is as diverse as you could imagine. And therein also is one of the fun things about it, is mm. that people bring different attitudes and uh, different technologies to mm. it. But you're right, um, we have to tap into our networks extensively to try to find the right people. Mm. And we do worry a lot about the cultural fit. Mm -hmm. It's got to work. Must make uh, the uh, lunchroom interesting and in all of the different types of food that must get brought in every day. <laughs> <laughs> we used to do that. Right. Um, these days, I don't think people break for lunch very right. often. <laughs> uh -huh. And so as a leader, um, what are the kind of things that you need to do to be able to manage that very diverse team and uh, and keep people engaged and on target in terms of your you know, unifying culture of the business? Yeah, um, it, it is about um, uh, service model and it's about understanding what the clients are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, I always tell our staff that our role is to make our customer look a hero in mm -hmm. their company. It isn't that we're there to solve the problem or to make a new widget. Hopefully we're doing that as well. But our key role is to make the person in the other company uh, become a hero. Mm -hmm. And um, what that means is that we build very strong uh, project teams where we integrate our team with the customer's team. Now, that sounds weird when they're all in Europe and North America and mm. we're here in Australia. So we use um, uh, teleconferencing and, and those sorts of sharing tools a lot. Mm -hmm. So the morning is very busy at Minifab as all our meeting rooms have those big screen TVs and we're dialoguing directly with the, um, the customers around the world. But the advantage of doing that is that when there are technical problems and the problems we work on always are going to have trouble mm -hmm. um, if if it was easy they probably wouldn't come to us sure and it's going to be something that's never been done before and chances are some of it won't work mm -hmm. if we've built that strong team then it's a team issue to get over that and it isn't the customer blaming us or us blaming the customer for mm -hmm. some mistake or something that was never um, on the other side, though, if there's a success, it's a shared success. Mm -hmm. And uh, we celebrate shared successes, both um, from our customers and, and from ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is very much um, about building those teams that mm. um, brings the, uh, the right attitude to the problems. Mm. And do you find that uh, you and Michael uh, take different roles in terms of uh, keeping that culture invigorated? Uh, is there um, attributes or elements of it that you share responsibility for? So the overall vision of the company is something that gets set by the board, which mm -hmm. is mostly Michael and myself, and then um, we do need to explain that through the management team back down to the staff. Mm. Um, the, um, if you like, the, the financial side of things tends to rest um, more from Michael and the technical side more from myself, but mm -hmm. it would be wrong to imagine that that's a, a, a very rigid boundary. Mm. Um, we, we do share the same things. Mm. But you're right. Um, 
the how you portray the culture of the business, particularly to new hires, because mm. uh, it takes us six to nine months to get them technically up to mm. speed. And during that time, we also have to make sure that they're understanding the minifab ethos and the way of behaving with our mm. clients. Mm. And um, that is a process that uh, comes from, from us, but also comes from our business development guy, Andrew Campitelli, uh, and the uh, project leaders. Um, I was interested to see over the last recent hiring spell, we've taken on 20 new technologists over the last six months, um, how uh, they've been self-organizing into right. teams that are explaining the minifab culture to each other. Okay, sure. So yeah, I, well. um, I suppose that, you know, where I'm, I'm, you know, trying to get my head around is that in a traditional or fairly typical business, for example, you've got sales and operations and uh, operations say, oh, sales, they always overpromise and we can, and sales say, oh, operations, they always underdeliver. And there's this conflict uh, which occurs, you know, whether it's a property company or a manufacturing company or a professional services company. Yours is so much more complicated than that because of, uh, you know, the the added um, requirement to really be right on the cusp of, of technology. And I'm just trying to understand how you can uh, get people to uh, much uh, have a sort of a tripod of responsibilities and do it consistently well. Um, uh, where these people are, you just said, hiring from technologists who aren't by nature probably commercially um, orientated or mm. not necessarily even customer service orientated. Well, what's absolutely critical in our company is that every engineer must talk to the customer directly. <laughs> so it's not the role of the business development or even just the project leader to manage the customer interface, but uh, every one of our um, engineers when the engineering team must talk to the customer and learn how to listen mm. is an important part of it as well. So in doing that, they also become part of the sales team. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier to retain a happy customer than go and find a new one. Sure. So they know that part of delivering the project and part of the the way that they talk and interact with the customer is a sales activity to make sure that we retain that customer for future generations of the product. Mm. Um, we, we do try very hard to make sure that there isn't a boundary between sales and marketing and operations. And we've got two parts of operations. We've got operations in um, product development and then manufacturing mm -hmm. operations. And we've got to make sure that there isn't a schism between those two either. Mm -hmm that manufacturing says, well, you guys didn't design this properly and how do you expect me to make it? Um, again, when we transition from product development to manufacturing, it mustn't be a surprise to the manufacturing mm. group what they're being asked to make mm. and at what cost. And so you mentioned earlier uh, when you're hiring, it's more about personality. Uh, technical skills obviously are important, mm. uh, but it's, uh, I mean, do you, how often do you get it wrong? Uh, uh, do you find that most people come in and then they uh, embrace this um, culture well or is it uh, a difficult thing to predict pre-hire? It is, it is a little hard. Um, we, we have made some mistakes, um, some particularly who like a rigid boundary around what defines their role mm. and, and um, take comfort in the fact that if it didn't work, then it's somebody else's fault. Sure. Um, and sometimes the extent of that isn't apparent until you've had a bit of a track record with mm -hmm. the person. But you're right. It, it, um, it's as much a gut feel as to whether this is going to work. I mean, one of our current starring project managers was a, a PhD student from one of the universities here in Melbourne. Okay. Um, he was German, came did his uh, undergraduate in Germany and then finished his PhD here. And his supervisor saw me and said, look, I've got this great student. Um, I reckon he'd be good for Minifab. He does quantum nanoparticles. And I looked at him and said, I know what that is, but it's it's nothing that we do. Right. What am I going to do with a quantum nanoparticle? Right. But that's trying to confuse the person from 
mm. their skill. Mm -hmm. And when we looked at this guy, it was really hard to tell if he had that kind of, as you said, three-legged mm. approach that we need. Um, but he was, he sold himself extremely well. He was very enthusiastic and he was prepared to back himself uh, into taking the role. And we thought, well, you know, that, there's something in that, mm. so um, let's, let's give him a go. Mm. It did take 12 months to convert him from a quantum nanoparticle guy into something we could use. Right. Um, but uh, it's worked really well. And are people generally pretty happy to uh, stray away from their original core uh, technical passion or orientation to open up to do other things? Well, they have to be, otherwise we don't have them. Sure. But it's it's um, not so much a question of applying your technical skill. It's it's really a question of knowing how to ask the right question. Mm. And as soon as you can define the problem space well enough, then we have techniques and approaches mm. that can solve it. Excellent. And so what's the future for Minifab? Uh, if we were um, crystal balling out to, say, 10 years from now, what would you hope that the business looks like? So manufacturing is definitely what we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, we can foresee um, a huge growth in um, the manufacturing output. I think it's exactly the kind of manufacturing we need in Australia because um, there's a very high intellectual capital built into the product. Mm. So we're not selling it on dollars per kilogram. Mm -hmm. We're selling it because it, it is intrinsically high value. Mm -hmm. So we currently, for example, air freight pallet loads of uh, medical devices every week to, to San Diego. Um, I would like to see a lot more of that, um, higher sophistication. I'd like to see that um, because of we and what others are doing here in Australia, that Australia starts to build a reputation for the high quality of medical devices. Mm -hmm. So that, what was the time frame you gave me? 10, 10 years, ten let's years? say. All right, yeah. That in 10 years, it's just obvious that you come to Australia to get sure. these things made because there's so much good stuff happening here. And what about in terms of your own career? Uh, yeah, are there things that you want to achieve outside of your current role and uh, you've got a, an eye on how to bring those to fruition over the next few years? I guess the problems always present themselves in a different way to me. I, I, I would like to um, uh, build that manufacturing base. I'd like to also spin out and get out some of our own uh, innovations up on their own feet and mm -hmm. going. I'd like to get more businesses surrounding us that, that have a similar reputation, all those mm -hmm. sorts of things. Um, if there's something on top of all of that, which I haven't worked out yet, right? Um, and it, I'd love that to present itself sure. as well. And yeah. if it does, I'll decide at the time. Fair enough. Well, look, uh, uh, we're getting towards the end, and I really appreciate I'm taking up a lot of your time. What's uh, life outside of work uh, for you? What are the kind of things you're passionate about when you're not flying around the world, uh, <laughs> uh, flying the minifab flag? I like fixing low-tech stuff. So right. uh, we've got some pretty ancient vehicles that... Um, one of one of the cars that we've got is a Citroen 2CV. So if anybody's heard of that, they'll know that there's only about six wires inside it that right. they could go. And uh, having beating your head around technology all the time, it's really nice to undo a couple of good, honest bolts and sure. screws. And I love Citroen. And uh, I mean, that car, I did a little bit of research before you came in. So 1948 to 1990, what sort of year is yours? <laughs> it's a fairly late one. It's an 87. Right, okay. Yeah, but you're right. They were built for a very long time. Mm. Very successful design. And quite a sexy car too. If, uh, <laughs> very uh, quirky. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. know, oh, that's great. Well, look, um, before we uh, wrap up, uh, Errol, from your side of things, is there anything that uh, you'd like to share, people who are listening to this podcast who have aspirations to either uh, run their own business or achieve, you know, the the role of CEO within an exciting business like yours. What are, what are some of the things that you'd say are important for them to um, uh, be mindful of and and put attention to? Yeah, look, I, I think we've covered a bits of it. Have a go. Definitely get out there and have a go. Uh, I can't imagine getting old and regretting that you never had a crack at something. That would be a terrible waste. The other thing is surround yourself by people that you trust, and uh, that will change um, and evolve. 
Um, but there's usually more support to help you succeed than people that want to cause you to fail. So mm -hmm. tap into that. And the other thing I hear a lot is that, well, you know, it's harder in Australia because we don't celebrate failure. You're not allowed to fail. Um, in fact, that's true of most of the world. It's mm. perhaps just not true of certain parts of the United States. Mm. So don't let that be a reason not to have a mm. go and, and get out there and learn. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. So there's a view by some that Australians are harder on people who fail than, say, um, other first world nations. So the people who say that usually mean Silicon Valley. Right. And they, they think that... In, in the Valley, if you've started a business, lost your first 20 million of investment, yeah. that you've learned from that right. and that you're okay to have another go. Mm. Whereas if you're a bankrupt here, then um, for legal reasons, it's sure. very difficult for you to restart. Right, okay. But also for reputation reasons, mm -hmm. people tend to go, oh, you know, he failed last time. Right. In practice, though, if you look at the rest of the world, Silicon Valley is fairly unique. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to some Finnish people and they said, no, 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 it's the same in Finland. If you fail, um, you basically disgrace the whole of us here in Finland and so you're exiled to Germany for seven <laughs> years before we'll let you back. <laughs> well, yeah, look, uh, I mean... I know a fair bit about that highly um, venture capital driven entrepreneurial sort of space. And I mean, they bet hard on 10 things, praying that one will come up. And if uh, seven fail, two kind of do okay, and one's a huge winner, then it, then at the end of the day, when you look at it as a, you know, across the full 10, um, it's, a, it's regarded as success. But I suppose we are more conservative than that. Um, well, I think we, we apply the same sort of um, numbers to investments. I, I think the difference in attitude is that in the Valley, they believe that the best business model succeeds. And if you failed, it's because your model wasn't the best. Right. And therefore, you will have learnt and mm. your next model will be better. Mm. Whereas in other parts of the world, more European parts, um, you, if you're entrepreneurial, you're somehow representing your community. Mm -hmm. And if you fail, you've let us all down. Mm. And therefore, you can't have another go at it. Now, the consequence of the American model is that they will let you try again if your business model failed. Mm -hmm. The consequence of the European model is that the community supports everybody. That's why you let us down. Mm. And what we need to do here is support people, yeah. build that supporting community Instead of just applying the worst of both of those, mm. don't let us down and only the good will succeed. Mm, because I suppose in that European example, you may feel reticent or uh, I'm not going to have a go because if I fail, boy, the consequences of that in terms of my relationships to the broader community, it's just not worth it. Yeah, it is a negative. Right. And we've got to make sure that we don't let that be a pervasive attitude here. Right. Well, that's uh, very interesting. I suppose uh, when you're bringing people into your uh, incubator, um, uh, that has got to be at the front of your mind um, to provide that environment to allow them to uh, be successful, uh, fail, but hopefully not so badly that, you know, they're bankrupt and, and forced out of business for the next seven years or whatever it is. And, you know, Richard, I, I bagged some university courses during this talk, but to, to um, get back to that, one of the things they recognise is the importance of building that cohort, that mm. um, community of people that can go through the exercise together. Mm. And that's a real important uh, mm. benefit sure. of going through those courses or, or even being connected to mm. some of the universities and their incubators. Mm. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. And uh, I know you've got other things to get on with. So uh, for those people who are listening in, uh, if you check the show notes, we'll have links to uh, uh, Errol. Do you have a, uh, a LinkedIn profile, Errol? You will find one. Oh, yes. excellent. Okay. Uh, so there'll be links to that and to Minifab and, uh, and thanks again. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Well, that was truly another wonderful conversation. What a story. A guy that comes to Australia as a teenager and initially spends time in a refugee camp 
uh, ends up traveling to the UK and returning to Australia to head this really fascinating business, Minifab, picking up a number of awards along the way and really, in my mind, giving a great example of somebody who's able to straddle the uh, scientific and commercial elements of running this type of organisation, which I, I think is kind of an alchemy type science. It's very, very rare to find somebody who's good at sales and operations, let alone somebody who's a scientist, who's also great at operations, who's also great at sales, who's also great at running a business, and great at leading and inspiring people. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to joining with you again for future Arate podcasts. In the meantime, have a fantastic day.